bum bum bottom 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 bum
one volume at a time. I think it did start one volume at a time. And I was like, this is interesting. And then you're like, here's the rest of it. I think we've had tremendous growth. I've had tremendous growth since that point in my life. And I would not uh, approach anyone with comics that way today because I think... I used I used to believe that my identity was wrapped up in the characters I love, and I think that causes a lot of problems and also causes a lot of disappointments in relationships <laughs> when they don't necessarily jive with them. But I don't know, like like I don't know if you necessarily didn't jive with the Hellboy comics. Oh, I I love them, and I and I love them more even more over time. Yeah, but there were but the there, stakes felt really high. Right, and there were moments early on in our dating where I was like, you gotta love the Coen brothers, you gotta love No Country for Old Men, and when you didn't love No Country for Old Men, like, I felt hurt, and I think <laughs> that's not your fault, that is definitely my fault. Like, we don't need to love all the same things. If we don't love the same things, people, that doesn't mean we can't operate on the same playing field but I was a much younger person. Then. I also think we're kind of talking about two different things. Okay, yeah. Where like, um, like when you are dating someone, a mixtape mm -hmm. is way stronger than giving someone your entire record collection. I, I see. Yes, 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 yes. And so I had handed you my entire record collection. Exactly. <laughs> right. I should have just given you like the chained coffin and other stories. It is about curation when <laughs> yes. you're trying to entice someone to be curious about a world. Lucky for you, <laughs> I love homework. Yeah. And I love an assignment. And, um, but I did read those comics way too fast. Mm. And I felt like on that first pass, I didn't really understand sure. the relationship between Hellboy and fo folklore. I hadn't read that many comics before that. I had read Sandman and Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. And that was maybe it. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I felt like I, I really hadn't you know, adjusted to the medium exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the great things about Hellboy, even for myself, is when I first read those comics, I really didn't appreciate them until the second, the third, the fourth. They're highly re-readable mm -hmm. comic books. They're the type of comic books that only get better as you revisit them. And that actually comes up in one of the conversations you're about to listen to, either with Rob Williams or with <laughs> Warwick Johnson Cadwell. I can't remember exactly. Uh, but that's the delight of these books. I would love to, at some point in comic book couples counseling, maybe on the Patreon, somehow cover Hellboy. Well, We've been doing, like, couples. Mm -hmm. But I think that... Um, a man's relationship with himself mm -hmm. and with gaining an understanding of himself uh, is also something really valuable to talk about. And I think that there is a lot of richness in the Hellboy comics in particular. Oh, yeah. I think we could definitely cover Hellboy in our regular sessions. I like the angle of self-care for one, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I also think, you know, we're in the middle of covering Sandman issue by issue, right? 76 issues, 76 episodes on our Patreon feed. And when we're finally done with that in a year and a half, where do we go after that? 
I think a Hellboy complete reread on the Patreon would be a lot of fun as well. I think that something that Sandman and Hellboy have in common is um, I'm going to steal something, a, a phrase from Jackie Cation. Oh, yeah. Do the it. comedian. Um, she she refers to a dork forest. I feel like Sandman and Hellboy are interesting dork forests within the landscape of comic books. Yeah. Like the people who choose to live in those universes first and foremost are not like the comic book fans you would meet anywhere else. Like they're an interesting entry point to people who are into folklore yes. or horror yes. or fantasy. I mean, I think Sandman and Hellboy are gateway comics. Like if you, you, you come from uh, folklore or film or literature. Or you're just a little emo gothy goth. Yeah, and you wander into these realms and you discover like, oh, this medium is actually pretty cool. And Sandman will then send you to the books of magic, right? Mm -hmm. And Hellblazer. Hellboy will send you over to the BPRD and Lobster Johnson and Witchfinder. And then from those areas, you might now start to feel comfortable wading into those other comic books that you've always heard about, but have never tried out. Before you know it, you're reading Long Halloween. Long Halloween takes you to the New 52. <laughs> the New 52 gets you reading superhero comics. And before you know it, you're just reading Spider-Man like the rest of us. You're not so cool and different. Can you tell I'm totally intimidated by goths? <laughs> A little bit, <laughs> I maybe. so wanted to be one and never could pull it off. All that being said, when you do start reading BPRD, and if you, if you jump from BPRD to reading Justice League or Avengers books... Like you, you see how, well, you, you see what makes Mignola verse so special because there is no going back from some of these catastrophic events. And this is what we really get into with Rob Williams. Like when something happens in the BPRD, when a creature rises from the ground and erases a portion of America. That portion of America does not grow back. Uh, the world is ending and we now have to exist in this new America, this new world, this new lifestyle. And you keep thinking that these books are building to an ending where a reset will occur. And I thought we were there after Plague of Frogs and Hell on Earth, but BPR kept going. The characters kept going. The planet did not blink out of existence, but it sure as heck looked a lot different than when I read the first issue of Seed of Destruction back in 1990-whatever. What is holding my fascination right now with the Mignolaverse is we have a hard stopping point. We have a timeline with an ending. And now with sort of Hyperborea, which is what we're going to be talking about talking about with Rob Williams, is that we're now finding a way to traverse the areas between the points on the timeline. Yeah, and that's always been a, one of the gifts of Hellboy is that when you read those earliest stories, it jumps from the 70s to the 90s to the 60s to the 40s, and, and then it just kept on going back and back and back to like Witchfinder, and now with the sort of Hyperborea, like a different age before man as we know it. I think one of the limitations 
people who don't read comic books all of the times thinks that comics have is like, there's no stakes because you can just start over and people come back to life and blah, blah, blah. And what the Mignola verse is proving is that that doesn't have to be the case. Yes, absolutely. And so the first conversation you're going to hear is with Rob Williams. Rob Williams is returning to comic book couples counseling. We spoke to him last year uh, after the release of Judge Dread End of Days and had a great time talking all things 2000 AD with him. And now here he is hanging out in the Mignola-verse. He's just as excited to be there as we are to have him there. Uh, he sounds very much like we would sound if we were suddenly given the keys to this particular kingdom, right? Uh, like what an honor, what a privilege to muck about with these toys. And this is probably a a good place to read the plot synopsis for Sword of Hyperborea number one, uh, taken straight from the Dark Horse Comics website. From the ancient warrior Gal Dinar to Sir Edward Grey to the BPRD's Agent Howards, the iconic Hyperborean sword from the world of Hellboy has landed in many influential hands. And this has been no accident. Trace the sword's path through the adventures and encounters that finally brought it to Ragnarok at the end of the world and witness the sword's journey through history. Okay, Brad, one more time, more sensuous. Oh, uh, I'm not going to do it one more time, but maybe I'll read the credits a little sensuously. Uh, written by Mike Mignola and Rob Williams. <laughs> Art, well, you don't like it? You don't like, <laughs> don't like that? I like it. I got creeped uh, out. <laughs> <laughs> written by Mike Mignola and Rob Williams. Art by Lawrence Campbell. Letterer Clem Robbins. Colorist Quentin Winter. And Dave Stewart on the cover colors. And Lisa and I had so much fun with this comic book. And I think it really does operate the way a number one issue should operate. You do not need to be a diehard BPRD fan to appreciate the mystery of this storyline. And I think it engages your curiosity enough where you could just stick with the sort of Hyperborea and continue going forward. But I would also bet that there's enough there if you read this, I think you'll engage with it. Lawrence Campbell's art is astonishing. You'll want to travel backwards, but that's not a necessity. Clearly, Brad and Lisa are super excited about this comic, but if we can't sell it to you, Rob Williams can. He is great to talk to. He gives good interview. He sure does. And then once this interview is done, stick around. Then we'll be chatting with Warwick Johnson Cadwell about his new comic, Falcon Spear, which uh, hangs out in a totally different area of that Mignolaverse dork forest. Rob, thank you so much for joining, for returning to Comic Book Couples Counseling. Welcome. Well, thanks a lot. I mean, it's great to be back. I, I genuinely enjoyed chatting with you guys last time. So yes, I'm, I'm hoping this time it won't it won't be a traumatic experience. Oh, pressure's on. <laughs> pressure's on. Thank you for those lovely words of affirmation. We do need them. <laughs> I'm super excited to talk to you about the Mignolaverse and the Sword of Hyperborea. I'm kind of curious how you came over to this realm of comics in particular. Uh, well, I mean, first off, I mean, like, I'm, I'm a big fan, uh, and uh, I've been reading Hellboy and BPRD for many years, and um, uh, and and, and it, it, Mike, me getting involved actually came through Lawrence Campbell, who's a good friend of mine, who's the artist on the sort of the Hyperborea, and I have a fantastic artist on it. Uh, Lawrence has been 
he he drew BPRD for you know, maybe five years. I mean, the kind of weird thing is Lawrence and I go way back and. I think I remember sort of I was reading BPRD and going, you've got to read this before he was even reading it and was aware of it. And um, and then, you know, it's weird how the world turns out. And then he ends up you know, being the artist on BPRD for five years. So there you go. But I mean, Lawrence was had been talking to uh, Mike and uh, Dark Horse about uh, sort of doing a kind of barbarian Galdena story. And I think Lawrence had some, you know, some visuals in mind, and um, and they, you know, they ju- they didn't have a writer basically. So Lawrence, because he and I worked together recently on a book called Old, Old Haunts, and Lawrence, like I say, Lawrence is one of my best best friends anyway. And he said, look, you know, would you be interested? And um, I had previously met with Katie O'Brien, the editor um, at New York Comic Con one year, and, and she and I and I had talked about my potentially doing some BPRD stuff. Um, so, um, you know, it, it all kind of the timing was right, and it all kind of came together. And this character in particular, one that I kind of adored immediately upon their introduction. And because, like, it's such a natural fit with, you know, Mignola's, uh, Robert E. Howard influences. Like, here is a Conan the Barbarian-type character in the world of the BPRD. Is is this a character that's just, like, a natural fit for you? Uh, do, do you uh, are, do you find an attraction to those same influences that are fueling this character? Um, I don't know if it's... I, I, I struggle to say it's an absolute natural fit for me. I, I'm not entirely sure I've, I've written a kind of barbarian kind of story before. Um but um, I mean, I, I guess it goes back to as I said, I was like a big fan of BPRD. Galdena, there'd been several stories, um, kind of notably, like I think James Harron uh, drew drew a couple of them, yeah. which were just stunning. Um, and um, and Howard's, I mean, I you know, if people aren't aware, Galdena is a barbarian character who exists in the Hyperborean past, like thousands and thousands of years ago. But he kind of has a weird um, uh, connection with with a, a BPRD member in modern day called um, Howard, who who picks up this sword in in a temple uh, in Chicago, which is a, a big point of our book, and suddenly gets Galdena's kind of memories, I guess you would call it. Suddenly becomes part Galdena and part himself, even though the thousands and thousands of years. Um, separate these two characters and um uh, so i mean that was kind of a cool kind of you know, idea to sort of you know place this barbarian character in, in a modern kind of setting and you know fighting all these monsters at the end of the world and as, as, as we know happened in bprd um but um i mean it, it, for me it's just uh, what interested me about the first issue was uh, yeah, spoiler alert if you've read bprd and if you haven't you should Yes. Um, you know, the kind of the humans lose and, and the world kind of ends. And they fight this epic battle over many years, and it's it's a losing battle. And there's sort of a core idea of as as is said on page one of, of the sort of hyperborea, is like, do you think we lose? Or is all this for not for nothing, or does it matter? And if you're if you're this character who is lives thousands of years in the past. And you know that all this battle, all this hardship, you're gonna—they're gonna lose at the end. So you kind of go, well, "What's the point?" Um, 
I found that a really interesting story because, I mean, at the end of the day, in in a way, if you want, I don't want to get too heavy, but it's kind of like that's something we all face. You know what I mean? We all know yeah. that our demise is out there waiting for us. You kind of go, so what? So is the fight worth? Is you know, are the good things worth fighting for still? And and you know, and we all do it. We all we all carry on. And I think one of the things you'll find as the series progresses is you'll find the other characters who have held the sword at various points. And their lives are touched just by the effort and the fight, the battle that Galdena goes through to pass the sword on. And then they pass the sword on. And and lives are affected and, and it shifts the world in certain ways. So, um, yeah, it was just a very um, – as soon as we latched on to sort of, oh, this is an exciting core idea, an emotional idea, and it's not, uh, you know, a Hellboy spinoff for the sake of a Hellboy spinoff – um, you know, at the end of the day, we want to make you really care about these characters, and hopefully you do. At one point in the story, Gal Denar wakes on a funeral pyre, and he says, like, I live even though I know the world ends and the monsters devour all light and hope. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's particularly meaningful in the Mignolaverse because it has this special relationship with endings w- with consideration to, like, Hellboy is gone, Abe Sapien is gone. The world is gone. The world is gone. And uh, I wonder, is, is, has been, you've been living in the Dread universe and mm. writing in the Dread universe so long. I wonder if, if anything you've learned from the Dread universe about endings, is there anything from that that you bring into this story? Um, there's a line I really like about the Dread universe, uh, which is in The Small House, which is a graphic novel I did where, um, basically, that that world died, and and all a- anything that the, the judges are doing or Dread is doing or any anyone still alive at that point is effectively clinging on by the by your fingertips into a pit that was dug a long time before. Yeah. So in in that sense, I think yeah, there is a real kind of resonance with where Galdena is and in 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 this story in in the Sword of Hyperborea because he knows they lose, but. I mean, one thing I would say, is, like again, it's spoilers. If people should read BPRD and and um, and Ragnarok, the last few um, graphic novels, um, but you see a scene at the start of this issue of sort of Hyperborea where Howard's um, holds a bridge to let the last humans get across to get into the underworld, and and if he doesn't do that, then th- those are the last people alive, you know. Um, and just the fact that he does that, there is hope because he is – they make it, you know? Yeah. Um, we don't know what happened to them. Um, that's a story that hasn't been told yet. But So even in even when all is lost yeah, – I'm, I'm sounding very optimistic now. This mm-hmm. is good for a Monday. Even when all is lost, <laughs> who knows? There is still hope in the future somewhere. We don't know where those stories go yet. It reminds me of a Brene Brown quote. I don't know if if you know about Brene Brown, but she's like one of my personal like experts. I, I, I think about her so much. And she has this quote that's like, hope is not an emotion. It's a, a way of thinking or a cognitive process. So yeah. hope is hope is something that exists when you see a way out. You You see a way out of something. And so what makes this relationship between Ted Howard's and Galden are so interesting is how do you find hope um, separate from knowing the ending of something? 
Yeah. Right. So like you can even know the ending of something and somehow you have to continue to exist. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, I think hope is hardwired into us, you know, and, and you know, as, as this part of the human condition. Right. I mean, even just like wanting things is, you know what I mean? It's like if you, you, were, you could be at your darkest ebb, you know what I mean? And there's still you hope for something doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean you necessarily are going to get it. Um, I think it's just, um, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's kind of knowing, I thought it was a particularly, there's a scene in the sort of Hyperborea, which I, I'm very fond of where Galdena is on top of the mountain around a fire and, and he's looking out at this, these impossibly huge mountains he's at the end of a world. He's thousands of years away from the woman he loves, uh, Liz. Mm-hmm. And he just says her name, Liz, you know, and I just kind of thought that was really three, you know, three letters. And it's just a, a human um, moment uh, in an impossible world at the end of a universe, it feels like, you know what I mean? But it's just, it's, there's something bright there, you know, he sat around a fire amidst all this darkness. I, I, it's a really, I mean, whether or not readers pick up on that, but I think that was, that was a moment where I thought, I thought that was particularly great. And also I think it plays into something that when we first had Zoom meetings with, with, uh, with Mike to, to, to discuss this, you know, one of, the, one of the major things Mike said about writing in this world is because you don't want to explain too much. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's a really sort of smart line because I think the more you hint with this stuff, you know, loving Hellboy over the years and stuff, you know, the the story isn't entirely, I think, you know, Mike knew it. Mike knew where it was all going, but, you know, you don't spell that out and, you know, exposition on the page is pretty horrible. So having things like not fully defining what the Galdena, Ted Howard's um, connection is and having this mysterious wolf turn up and say Chicago to him and yeah. and then he says I understand and he, we don't say what he just understood and that is um to me it, it, as a writer is that type of connection is quite quite exciting because immediately the reader you go I really want to know what that is right <laughs> yeah. And, so, yeah uh as a long time hellboy reader those moments of mystery mm. and revelation, they send shivers down your spine as you're reading it because you don't know exactly what it means, but you know it means something. And yeah. the other aspect of BPRD in particular that I try to highlight when selling the comic to people is that it is a realm of real consequence Mm -hmm. you know you read marvel comics and the earth will get spun on its axis but then by the end of its 12 issues the earth will be righted again and new york city's fine guys yeah but when apocalypse occurs in bprd uh you're now living in that apocalypse for the rest of bprd you know like the plague of frogs happens and it doesn't unhappen and i think that also relates to dread and how dread as a character ages yeah. and continues and there's no like back season either uh, territories no and it's um yeah it, everything feels like it has um stakes as a result and and you know if something happens it's it's gonna, it's gonna stick. It's gonna last, you know. And I think the, the one other thing I think with Dread and B, the Hellboy BPRD world having common is uh, the willingness to to kill off amazingly great characters. Yeah, and they're gone. 
and you're going, oh, and if it's Marvel or DC, that you know they're back. You know they're coming back. I mean, so nothing, everything feels a little bit like nothing means anything in that in that regard. Um, but I mean, just BPRD. You know, you had characters like Roger. Was that, and um, and Johan, you know, the, and uh, in the containment suit, and uh, um, you know, and, uh, just some of the best, most memorable characters, and and you know, they you know, again, spoiler alert, but um, and and Dread's been like that throughout. I mean, basically, Dread will just Dread villains don't hang around. You know, I thought about this last time. You go, oh, that's a really great villain. Oh, oh, they're gone now. They're never. We'll never see them again. Oh, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> similarly, for for a lot of you know, Dread's great supporting characters. You know, as a kid, you know, just when, when Judge Giant died in in Block War, as a kid, it was just still like, you can't do that. You can't. You can't kill Judge Giant. And 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 it, and it, it means something. You know, as as a result and. Um, yeah, I mean, I just, but I mean, the stakes are what we saw in BPRD, which we didn't realize was as we sort of Ogdrew Hem, I'm probably mispronouncing it, sort of rose up these enormous monsters and the world changed. I and mean, then suddenly you slowly began to realize, oh crap, this is, this is, this whole story has been about telling the story of the end of the world. And we just didn't realize it because we're, we're predispositioned to think that the good guys will save the day. And, um, and it wasn't that kind of story. And, and again, with with what happens with Hellboy at the end, you know, um, it's it's not that kind of story. So, um, but there is, there, you know, the world, this universe, and the world goes on, you know. And, and like as we as we saw that in a little sort of mini flash sequence, uh, you you saw the frog people, you know, in the future, um, and um, you saw sort of uh, what looked to be Liz Sherman in a in, in a crystal, you know, in at the end of BPRD, and it was like, oh, okay, you know. So there is there is more. To like, to me, a character like Ted Howard's slash Gal Denar cannot work in a universe without consequences because it would just mean nothing because because of their relationship between the sword with one person being in a coma while the other person is um, creating change in their own timeline. Like we now have essentially one character who can affect change in both the present and the past, which Mm. is, um, which is like the human dream. We always think about the past as being this like huge immovable thing where we just have to kind of adjust to in the present. But now, even though those two timelines are so greatly estranged, they are now closer because of this one person. Yeah. And when Gal Denner wakes up on the funeral pyre, like his tri- most of his tribe is like so happy to see him. Oh yes, finally this great warrior who has visions of the future is back. But there is like one dude, Mekthar, who is like, what is the point of having this powerful warrior if he can't be truly present with us? If he's not with mm. us all of the time? And Galdenar is like you know, Mekthar is kind of right. Yeah, he's got, he's got a point. <laughs> yeah, what is the point? And so sometimes I wonder, like, do you relate to that as an artist? Because when you enter, like, like the Mignola verse, you 
have this entire mm. timeline at your disposal. And now even time is a construct in, yeah. in the Mignolaverse. But you are only there for a finite moment of time. And in that moment of time, you are there to either maintain the, the status quo or affect real change. And do you find that intimidating? Do you ever despair in the face of that? <laughs> or, or do you like go like, okay, I'm going to, I'm only here for a certain amount of time. I'm going to affect all of the change that I can. <laughs> well, I mean, what I would say with that, I mean, it, it's kind of, it's not my first rodeo in as much mm-hmm. that I, I've, I've, you know, I, with dread, you know, I mean, you know, John Wagner is 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 the the chief architect of that world and always has been. Um, I've worked for, in the Marvel universe. I worked in the DC universe. Um, it, it's um, I think you you are always intimidated. I mean, God, you're really intimidated when you come in. I think for, for work as good as as Hellboy has been and BPRD has been, which is genuinely some of my favorite comics of the last two decades. Um, you don't want to mess it up. I know that much. Um, so that's very into you know the quality, the standard is very very high. Um, but you also kind of um, uh, you you don't want to see my. It's a weird. It's a dance. You, you dance in as much that you don't want to come in with a tone which is feels nothing like the universe at all. But you also want to bring some. Always want to bring something of yourself to it. You know and. Um, and also then, I mean, one of the interesting things about Sword of Hyperborea is, is uh, issue two, issue three, issue four, you will meet brand new characters mm-hmm. who, who uh, Lawrence Campbell and I have, have invented. And um, and you are seeing aspects of the Magnoliverse you, 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 you've not seen before because these characters are brand new and their struggles are brand new. And um, But we're trying to kind of interweave them with some of the actions you saw in sort of a Witchfinder the miniseries and all this stuff, which is pivotal. And if you're, you know, want to deep dive in the Hellboy history, you know, Edward, Edward Gray and all that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, so I like to think, and if we've done our job well, we, we've created a, a comic that if, you, if you've never read Hellboy and BPRD before, you'll still dig it. If you do love the timeline and you can join the dots, you will wreck get a, a kick at us recognizing certain things but the our main goal which is a job is is always the case no matter what, what the gig is we want to create characters we want you to care about and we want you to you know we're going to probably put them through hell and we want you you to sort of feel bad for them or feel happy for them when they succeed or whatever and um and also then you know do it in in a, in a, in a visually stunning way which i think is inherent with this universe it, it has to be you know the best looking comic books uh, because they always have been, and anything that isn't is people are going to you know feel shortchanged because you're you're you know you're talking about you know Mike Mignola, Duncan Fagredo, Guy Davis, James Harron, people like that, you know. And I think um, I think what Lawrence has done here in sort of Hyperborea is, is is amazing. And when we did Old Haunts, our last book, you know, we were seeking a kind of very cinematic kind of look. Um, rooted in kind of like Michael Mann films or something. I mean, Lawrence is very, very good at that, but he's also just a really fantastic storyteller. But I think in Gal Denner's journey, you know, we wanted it to feel epic. We wanted his quest to feel like it's been going on for years. And there's a great double-page spread of, of you see him fighting pterodactyls and woolly yeah. mammoths. And, you know, we, we, we want this to feel like an epic 
Um, he's not just popping down the road to the shops. He, <laughs> in that world, if you go, if you go on a quest, it is it is a serious business, and um, and hopefully this all feels like it has stakes and personal stakes as well as big stakes. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Lawrence Campbell's he is a top tier BPRD artist, and you know, Lisa and I were talking about just the first few pages of this comic, and when you get that first panel of Howard's mm. uh getting ready to enter the end of the world uh that is such uh a momentous shot uh to, and and you, it just it just builds from there and i and i do think that if you were to give this comic book to somebody who has not read BPRD through that mystery that you and Mignola were talking about, not wanting to explain things on uh, during your Zoom call, through the mystery of this, a first-time reader can go like, okay, there is a large world and a large mythology out there that is super interesting, but it's also not alienating because I think you don't do rely on exposition. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, yeah, and that's, I mean, I hate exposition on the page. It's just death. I mean, I, I, I have no interest in reading comics with this big, we're going to explain everything that went on in the next few pages. You know what I mean? I, you want to kind of just grip people's, you know, heart. And you want to grip, grip their guts, really. You know what I mean? And 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 take them, you know, take them along. That first page is like that was sort of a statement of intent, really. It's just kind of you know, you just see this guy. You know, yeah. it's, this is this is who our story is about. You know, you could easily go, oh, we're going to open with a splash of a big monster or something. You know, or we, you know, just it just I wanted it to be. Uh, that first scene, it's him and Liz, you know, and this is this is what's worth fighting for. And, and the world might be ending, but like she says, she she actually makes him smile for a second. You know what I mean? And um, yeah. um, oh, I get choked up even thinking. Oh, love oh. it. Well, like that's why I connected to this story so much because I think that Gal Denar, in particular, having grown up with this sword in his life. Like, I think that he's always been kind of forced to think at an epic scale. Mm. But now that he has Liz, all of a sudden, this epicness is so intensely personal. And he goes like, well, how does this epicness relate back to me? And how do I continue in the face of epicness, when I feel like I don't get to have or I don't get to spend the time in the places that I cherish and I feel like are very important to me. Yeah. And also he's a small cog in a, in a, in a yeah, I think he's away in a, in, a, in a very large wheel, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you read, I mean, I recently reread uh, Hellboy, um, you know, a, a, a darkness uh, cause and, um, uh, the Wild Hunt and, and oh yeah, uh, the Fergredo trilogy. Yeah, so it's, yeah, yeah, it's amazing, amazing stuff. But like Hellboy, there, I mean, everyone he meets is going, "You are the most important character in this <laughs> universe." Constantly, right? And, yeah. and he hates that. He doesn't want that. He just wants to be an ordinary guy, um, which is part of the tragedy of a character. But I mean, it's just like you know, I guess uh, who are you in Star Wars if you're in the original trilogy? If you're not Luke Skywalker, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just. Um, and, and that's, you know, it, it's kind of one of Gal Denar's things in this is I have to pass the sword on. But what's the, you know, that's a very, you know, you're, you're Rosencrantz and Guildenstern in Hamlet. Do you know what I mean? You are kind yeah. of, you are one of the background characters. And is there a point in that? But 
the fact of the matter is, as it kind of, you know, it all goes full circle in the first issue. You see Howard's use the sword to, um, to as I said, to, to allow the last humans to escape. And it, so everything that Galdena does actually thousands of years in the past actually saves the human race. But he doesn't, you know, he's there on a mountain in the middle of nowhere going, what is the point? Because he doesn't know, actually. He doesn't know. That's one of the tragedies, actually, I should say. You know, because Howard jumps in to fight the monster. Right. He doesn't get to see them escape. He doesn't know if they make it. Uh, like one of the things that the the wolf said in the vision is mm. like, you are not the sword. Right. Right. The sword is something separate from you. Like, so like you are not necessarily your purpose. You might be the wielder of your purpose, but your purpose is ultimately going to be passed on. And like, so like the time we've spent with, uh, Ted Howard slash Gal Denar is so precious because we know that from the little blurb at the beginning of this comic that this is this isn't a story about the individual. This isn't a story about Gal Denar and and Ted Howard. So this is a story about the sword. And so we're going to be following this object being passed from person to person mm. and how 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 each individual wields that object. And like Objects in literary culture, like not just comics, objects are always like these weird, precious cruxes that live outside of time. So like, how is it writing a story centered around an object that is either a metaphor or not? It could be a metaphor, it could be an object, <laughs> rather than like I'm writing Galdenar's story. Um, do you know what, it's great because I think if... if as a writer, especially on a story like this, it, it, I can't speak for anyone else. You, you need something simple in in when, when in writing because basically you you will you will lose your mind. There are a billion writing options, and you won't get anywhere. So this is why I think writers we need structure. We need a we need a straight line. You know, to if there's a billion choices, show me a show me a light somewhere on the horizon, and I'll go towards it. Mm-hmm. And and that's the um, that's what the sword is. The sword is our tether. It's our structural um, MacGuffin. You know, as uh, as Hitchcock called it. it. Doesn't matter what the MacGuffin is. He said people just need a MacGuffin in the story. Um, and so that allows us to sort of like move through time, through thousands of years of history in a hurry in four <laughs> in four issues. You know, and we we do do a big leap. Uh, from issue one to issue two, issue two is set in in World War One. Was the backdrop, and um, and then we go to World War Two, and then we go in the last issue to uh, the nineteen fifties, and, um, and and uh, yeah, I won't say much more than that because I don't want to spoil it. But um, yeah, it's kind of um, also it's a great looking sword, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. It's, it's very memorable. I mean, it's like it's the you know one of the fantastic things about Mike Mike's art. You know, when he designs a lot of this stuff, it just it stands out. It's just it's would have been so easy to, to to make it just like this big sort of warrior sword, but it just it's so distinctive. And and, and you know something we play on visually as a metaphor going forward is it it does split in two different directions at the tip, which is kind mm. of um, interesting. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you know, we'll, 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 we'll make more of that as we, as we progress. 
Uh, yeah, I love the sword because it is just like this big hunk of metal, this ancient metal. Mm. It's not Excalibur. It's 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 so old. Well, we we are yeah, but it, I mean, Excalibur is a good touchstone, isn't it? Because we are we are, you know we're hardwired. You know the Arthurian myth is. I mean, it's, it's you know it's heavy in in Hellboy. You find out that Hellboy is actually a a descendant of King Arthur along the way. You know, but it's like there is something to be said about holding a a powerful sword up and you know they're going in to fight evil um but um not something i've done myself i can't speak for you <laughs> not yet anyway mm. uh, what in, impressed me in this conversation that we're having now rob is that when you are discussing the story that you are helping shepherd with mignola and lawrence campbell and quentin winter mm. um you know you still got emotional just thinking about the journey that these characters are going on. So clearly you connect with them in a similar way that you would have when you were younger and you were not a professional. I hope so. I mean, if you, I think that's just, you know, if you're doing it, if you're doing it right and if you care and, um, and, you know, I think it, it's pretty apparent if you look at this book that Lawrence and I put a lot into it and are very invested in it. You know what I mean? It's just like it's, – it's one of these nice things. You can get a bit – you know, I wouldn't like – I mean, you can get a bit jaded with certain jobs because like, any, like anything, we're all sort of, you know, you can go, oh, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm retreading certain steps. This was I, – I, I was genuinely bowled over to be getting to do a Mignola book, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, I genuinely have loved, loved uh, you know, reading these comics, like I say, for years. So – so, as I said, you, I think, you know, you go in and you go, I, if I'm doing this, I really want to, you know, we want to try and bring our A game to this, you know, and um, we wouldn't dare do anything else. But um, I think you'll see in the characters to come as well. I think they're very, I mean, I always respond to this, but they're very human characters. They're, they're, they're not necessarily, which I think has always been the case in BPRD, whatever, you know, they're, they're quite flawed um, and they're very, you know, um, they're not necessarily the, the big sort of alphas who are going to come in and smash things up and go, I'm great. You know, they've, they've, they've got their own personal emotional journeys. And so if, you, if you're finding that, um, if you're right in those characters, you, you always put a bit of yourself into them. And, um, and uh, yeah, again, it's in, I think in the Magnolia verse, a lot of these, a lot of his characters are going to end up with quite tragic ends. You know what I mean? It's not necessarily a world where people come out happy. And so, um, yeah, there's a lot to get emotional about. Well, my hope for this book is that it inspires a, a serious fandom for uh, Gal G- G- Why can I never say it? Gal Gnar? G- Denar. Gal Denar. Jesus yeah. Christ. <laughs> and Howard's to the point where I can finally get an action figure because I've collected, you know, the Hellboys, the Abes, the Johans, yeah. uh, the Liz's. But I, I like this is a figure that belongs in plastic. Oh yeah, Howard's Howard's does definitely with his big BPRD crest on his on his chest and that body armor. Yeah, they should yeah. do that. But um, but yeah, we got some great ones coming up as well. So yeah, if uh, I would be more than happy if they ended up with them. Um, the characters in issues two, three, and four, if, if they end up with their own, you know, similar. But, um, yeah, we'll see. And, you know, if, if all goes according to plan, there might well be, you know, more stories to come with some of these characters. We're oh, talking good, about good. it, so we'll see. 
Well, uh, issue one of the Sword of Hyperborea is out now. Uh, four issues in total. Rob, where can our listeners find you online? We're going to have links in the show notes. They can see it down there. But in case they don't look at those actual show notes, where can they find you to continue this conversation? Uh, you can find me talking nonsense on Twitter most days with um, at RobWilliams71. And... Um, I've got a website which I've not updated for quite some time, uh, robwilliamscomics.co.uk, uh, which I will. Now I've said that, I immediately feel guilty, and I will update <laughs> it, I swear. Awesome. Well, Rob, thank you again for hanging out with us uh, this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Super excited about the comic and what future holds for uh, the sort of Hyperborea. Yeah, thanks a lot, guys. It's, uh, as last time, it was a pleasure to talk to you both. Yeah, thank you, Rob, for joining us for that chat. Lisa, I think we should have Rob on the show every year. We should chain him to that with like a contract or something. <laughs> yeah, because you know what uh, friends love? Obligations. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So let's lay out the traps. Mm -hmm. And we should probably lay out a few more traps so we can also engage and capture Warwick Johnson Cadwell so that he must also return every year to chat with Comic Book Couples Counseling because this interview you're about to hear is also a tremendous delight. And Falcon Spear. And really, the Professor Mindheart and Mr. Knox stories in general, like... These are very special. Like they, there's nothing in the Mignola verse quite like these comics. They started with Mr. Higgins comes home, and then Mignola was just like Warwick, uh, you go off and do your own thing with these characters. I don't care what it is. And then Warwick Johnson Cadwell did our encounters with evil, and now Falcon Spear, which Lisa, you just wrote a really glowing review of Falcon Spear for Comics Bookcase. Yeah, I did. Like, what I enjoyed about the first two volumes of this series is that they're so concise. They're short little stories. They contain a mystery. They're very fantastical. They really enjoy living in that kind of buttoned-up Victorian space. Yeah, there's a there's a humor to them that is biting, uh, but very silly. But this third story is so different because I feel like it really is a true departure from that which is fantastical and kind of enchanting. Although that stuff is still there. It's still there, but it's earthier. It's more grounded. And it's really about like embrace like it really embraces the 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 areas of Victorianness that we don't really talk about, where the Victorian era was a time where it was like this tremendous amount of progress in technology without a complete understanding of how it worked and what the success means. Mm -hmm. And it leads to this very superstitious, paranoid atmosphere where they go like, um, well, what is separating me from, like, the generations before me? How come I'm not engaged in manual labor like that? Oh, it must be because I am so dignified. It must be because I am so private. And it just gets where they get to this place where the principles have to be so 
rigid. Mm -hmm. And so in this story, one of their cadre is missing. James Falconspear is gone, and they receive this mysterious correspondence in the mail, and they go like, well, what does this mean? And they find out that Falconspear has been dealing with this very different type of mystery and struggling alone with it. Yes, and, yes. And it's about engaging with that aloneness and the kinds of decisions people make when they are completely isolated with their own principles. Yeah, and at the center of that isolation is an evil that is so now. It's This is the darkest of these stories yet in a way that I kind of didn't expect uh -huh, uh -huh. and it caught me off guard. Yeah, well, well, uh, this, in a good way. this conversation that we have, which sadly Lisa was not able to attend, uh, but Warwick and I chatted about this in particular and, and how this third volume, how Falcon Spear became what it is. And we also talk about how Mr. Higgins Comes Home came into fruition and, and what a unique um, place that Warwick Johnson Cadwell holds within the rest of these Mignolaverse comic books. So uh, if we could do one thing with this episode, I hope that people who have not read Mr. Higgins Comes Home or Our Encounters with Evil or Falcon Spear, that they go out and seek these books out. You can pick up Falcon Spear, which comes out uh, this upcoming week. Uh, you can pick that up, read it, and totally enjoy it. You don't need the other books to understand it, uh, but like, you're gonna want those two other books. And mm -hmm. you know, there's not a lot of reading here. You can do it real quick. You can do it in an afternoon and you're gonna wanna binge them right quick. Well, let's get into this chat because I haven't heard it yet and I'm curious. <laughs> Warwick, thank you so much for joining us on Comic Book Couples Counseling. It's a true pleasure to have you here. Well, thanks for having me along. This is great. Honestly, when uh, I got the email that this interview was a possibility, I let out a little squeal because Mr. Higgins Comes Home is one of my favorite uh, Mignola-related projects. I think it's like a a little crown jewel within the Mignolaverse, even though it's not really a Mignolaverse book either, if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, no, it, I mean, that's fantastic to hear. Uh, uh, really fantastic to hear. But, um, but yeah, no, it, it is, it is funny. These books are, uh, they're on a, they're a thing on their own, which is, yeah. you know, a mighty privilege because it sits there with amazing screw on head, which is yeah. one of my sort of, you know, that's probably my most returned to, uh, book of his yeah and um, mine as well uh, that's a that's a great comparison these two definitely sit next to each other on the shelf and I'm, I'm kind of curious though if we could start our conversation with your relationship with Mignola's stories his artwork where you first encountered him and then like what is it like to evolve into a creative partnership and then now kind of running wild with <laughs> that universe. Well, it's, it's bonkers is what it is. I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy, but, um, I just knew his stuff. I, well, I didn't realize I knew his stuff. I, uh, um, I used to work at a comic shop a million years ago, um, in the sort of early nineties in the town 
where we live and it's pretty sleepy and um and I just I worked Saturdays or weekends or whatever but I wasn't I was just getting paid in comics I was just bringing mm. them home and um and so there was lots I was sort of picking up and I hadn't realized I mean even still still now you know there's stuff that I recognized his works quite quickly mm. and um at that time he was doing X Factor covers and other bits and pieces just lots of covers and lots of you know that I was really enjoying and then and books as well um things like the, the the savage land bits and pieces and but then the the top dracula and that's just sort of everything yeah. i sort of focused but but um every now and then I see comic covers pop up you know old classic as i think i remember that and i've got that one not realizing that he'd been doing the inking on the or you know there's so much of his of the american comics that i was loving before i realized it, that was actually him working on that as well or you know and so from from way back um i've been influenced or excited by his style and then um well then you know it was not long after that tops i went to 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 college went to do a degree in a in a different city missed hellboy number one which i've never yet managed to pick up a copy of but um and that was it you know hellboy was yeah. was amazing so so um, how do you initially hook up? Uh, you know, he wanted to tell some sort of hammer influence stories, or I, I think he also references like the fearless vampire killers. And I've read interviews where you've discussed how these books are inspired by your memory of hammer films. Yeah. Uh, what's the origin of this particular project? It, 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 we knew each other. I obviously I knew his work, um, and and you know, just been going over and over it through the books for years and years. And it's just a big source of inspiration, and the subject matter, his subject is similar, even if it's not sort of the the horror stuff, but the sci-fi stuff. And you know, he was into something that you know, that I was was also into, and mm. you know, and probably influenced by that, but. Um, I was drawing his bits and pieces. I was drawing some of his stuff. I did, uh, I think the first time there was any sort of contact was I had drawn bed knobs and broomsticks. Do you know the film? Oh yeah. Yes, I do. Yeah. Well, it, it, you know, it's a witch versus invading Nazis. And so, it's, so good. it's uh, with a great battle at the end. I mean, just, uh, the battle at the sequence at the end just blew me away, but it just made sense. So I was just drawing for for you know popping stuff up on on a blog, and I was drawing uh, Hellboy characters with bedknobs and broomsticks characters in this you know it, it just sort of darkness and um, and that's that got to 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 Mike somehow that got to Mike and had an email just to say he liked the stuff and and I was I was quite blown away by it, but. Yeah. Um, so we sort of, you know, he, he knew, I knew he'd, he'd seen my, my, my stuff and, um, and, uh, you know, we sort of followed on Facebook and, and then, um, we met at a, in Thought Bubble, you know, the UK's oh, yeah. biggest, you know, the, the, the best comic show in, that we have. And, um, we happened to be on a, a sketch panel. There was four artists on a sketch panel together and he was one and, I was I was uh, one of the other three, which was just incredible. And um, 
so just got to say hello then and watch each other drawing over each other's shoulders and I went round with a pile of books to to give him and to get one of mine signed and um you know he just made a comment that we should work together and do something and I just uh you know I've said a few times but if that was the last thing that had ever happened about it I'd have been happy you know that that would have been been perfect for me but um but no it was he'd get back in contact every now and then just for the next I think it was the next month a couple of months just to say yeah no I've now I'm just you know I'm a bit further ahead now I've got an outline now I've got a this and at every stage I just thought it was gonna just gonna finish gonna stop and that would be the end of it but it just it just kept going so and I'm curious about the evolution from Mr. Higgins comes home to our count, our encounters with evil to now Falcon Spear. And, you know, I'm looking at the credits page of Falcon Spear, but it seems to me that Falcon Spear is, is like truly like from your heart and brain. Yeah. Yes. Um, Mike wrote Mr. Higgins comes home and, uh, and I drew it and I just, it, that was, you know, that, and just again, that whole experience was was crazy. But and but then I said, I asked, uh, you know, the professor and Mister Knox were just great. I mean, everybody, you know, I was drawing this book, thinking up, I was drawing Mister Higgins, just thinking of, of 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 different things. You know, I was drawing, you know, what, what could these other characters do, and who's these guys, and and he's just got these these great people these great characters that he just sort of drops in but then nothing happens you know that that's it and i'm thinking well these could be good and then it, it sort of got even beyond that because the way i was drawing it i was starting to think well this environment or this you know this furniture could it was just everything just it was just so inspiring there were stories piling up from all over so i said i said could i have a go at doing something with with mr higgins or with the, not mr higgins i thought we'd leave that if ever he decided he might want to come back and do something with that but Professor Meinhardt yeah. and, uh, and Mr. Knox, and, and that was okay. And so I wrote, yeah, I wrote Our Encounters and and then and Falkenspear now too. So, so it, it, he's quite conscious, I think, that his name's on the books, but you know, he's, he's having to uh, sort of correct folk um, on online and bits and pieces just to point out that, you know, I've written and illustrated both of these books but um but it's a, the, i think the credit it needs to stay there because the influence he's had and the encouragement i've mm. had from following his work and bits and pieces you know these are you know it's, there's quite a lot of uh of mike mignola in 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 all all the books sure i was um a little stunned by falcon spear reading it uh, and I'm I'm dancing around, not spoiling anything. Yeah. But the antagonist of Falcon Spear uh, was not what I was expecting. But I was also kind of just like delighted by it and how it spoke to hmm, uh, the the systems in place that propagate evil as well. It felt like a very uh, 2022 uh, comic book to me. Well, I mean that's that's great to hear. I mean that the, the, it was the idea, you know. It's you, we've already had the devil, you know. The, yeah. the devil's turned up, so you know who could be worse than that? And, <laughs> and well, actually, you know, 
in the long run, I mean, the devil, I, I, I loved his character in Mr. Higgins because he was just like into cause trouble. He was, you know, he, he sort of, he appeared and hid and, and just, you know, it feels like he's just up to mischief. So I thought, well, what could be worse than, than the devil himself? And, you know, and so started to think about that, that, you know, with these, these guys, you know, equipped to fight all manner of, uh, of creatures, you know, what, what, um, barriers, what problems could they sort of encounter to doing that? And so, yeah, it was, I, I, yeah, it was just an interesting, it was an idea I thought was quite interesting. And so I would, I would be curious about, um, the construction of that that idea and how Falcon Spear plays into it, and you know the comic starts off 15 years earlier, uh, and we see Falcon Spear in all his glory, uh, yeah. only so that we can jump to the present and we learn that something has happened with him, and we're not exactly sure. And then we get to learn what happened and who's to blame and all that stuff. And so is. What what was the initial spark that became this story? Was it Falcon Spear? Was it the villain? Was it the structure? An image? Ah, well, these there's always lots going on. You know, as I say, just drawing around, getting into Mister Higgins, drawing around that. You know, Mm. there's you're looking at reference, sort of making stuff up, and as I say, you know watching those old hammer movies and universal films but which often sometimes felt a bit different my me- as i say my memory of them it obviously is, is sort of you know 12 year old you shouldn't be sitting up watching them or crap you shouldn't have crept down to see something ghastly like that you know you've got no idea what's going on and so the memories of those sorts of things are often quite different from you know a rewatch of the films totally missing the point of some or making up but so there's always sort of stories, many things going on at the same time. And so these things can come together sort of, you know, quite quickly because, you, you know, you remember an idea that had had or maybe there's a new idea popped up and suddenly two other things have glued themselves to it. I mean, um, I drew, when I first got my copies, I was my first show uh, was not a comic show. When I've got my first copies of Mister Higgins, it was a an illustration fair in a, in a city nearby, and it was the first time I'd sort of got American format comics. Normally, before that, I'd been sort of doing um, my sort of you know a small press. I'd been printing my own bits for this sort of thing, but it was the first show where I'd got uh, copies of Helena Crash and Tank Girl. I think I'd, I had, mm. which had been out before, and then Mister Higgins as well, and. Um, and it was exciting, but it was not the right show for it. So for my table, it was pretty quiet, although I was just <laughs> bursting to, 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 to show people and sell this stuff. So I sat and drew, I was drawing a, you know, I was drawing a vampire or vampire hunter for every book that was sold. Mm. And, um, and it wasn't the Falcon Spear that, that's in the book now, but there was a version of him that was drawn sort of on that day. So, you know, before Encounters with Evil had turned up, I think he, he probably could have ended up in there. But I was just trying to work out how to, you know, where this character would work. And so then thinking of the situation in Falcon Spear, he sort of, sort of appeared there. So, you know, it... I don't know if it's a handy thing having an untidy mind or a twice as untidy studio, but you know, these ideas are all over the place. 
and uh, you know, sometimes they can stick together. So it, it, it's more than one thing happening at a time. So I don't know where the connection came between the two of them, the idea and the character. I mean, the impression that I'm getting, you know, like I, I love hearing how as you were writing or uh, creating Mr. Higgins, uh, even drawing furniture was a, was creating a, a creative energy in you. Uh, and so the impression that I have is that you could tell Professor Enoch stories God knows how long. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that would be. I mean, I know, you know, I think I've got away with quite a lot so far. I mean, I thought well, I got away with quite a lot when the second book came out. So, but I mean, yeah, you know, these guys are, they're, a, I mean, they're a great group of characters. Those two, Mary Van Sloan and, you know, even Falkenspear as well. They're just, you know, they could go into all sorts of places. And indeed, you know, the, 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 there are ideas to send them all around the world. Uh, good, good, good. Um, I, you know, like the other delight that I, I take from these comics is their format as well and how Dark Horse publishes them in these 1499 hardback, uh, uh, pretty, like almost digest size, not quite digest size collections. They just, they read so well and they read so quickly. Uh, I would like a whole you know, I want a whole shelf of these stories. <laughs> well, I would like you to have a whole shelf. I, yes. You know, I would say, I mean, I, I, I mean, it's nothing else. Just look at putting the three out of on a tabletop to look at those covers. You know, yeah. I, I, if I could, if they could keep, I could keep writing them. If if Mike would do another cover for each of them, awesome. you know, and um, but they're great, and they're I do like. I love the format. I love the way that they are presented um they just look brilliant so, so the first one comes out in 2017 and you're working in pencil and ink are you still working in pencil and ink no uh and i wasn't uh mr higgins and encounters and they're all in pencil very scruffy pencil and then worked again with a tidier pencil and then that's digitally sort of uh fiddled to, yeah, to get the black line and then and then digitally colored. Okay, and, and so it, it is you know because I'm 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 reading currently uh, uh, Falcon Spear digitally because I don't have my physical Ooh. copy yet, and I was just looking that it feels like there has been some sort of shift or change in how you're executing the illustrations, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But. Uh but, or am I completely wrong? Well, no, I think, um, I, you know, I, I, there wasn't a big change in the intended way to put them down, mm -hmm. but, um, was sort of made in a fairly funky year. Of, of course. Yeah. 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 And well, so like, like, I'm just looking at it from like the, the coloring standpoint, as well, like, you know, uh, the, the blood in particular uh, has a different quality to it. Mm. And I don't know if it's also if I'm just having an emotional reaction to the narrative, because I feel like Falcon Spears narrative. I mean, they all have a little bit of a somber tone to them, but but there's a, like a little bit like a steeper dip in that somber quality in Falcon Spear. And I feel like I notice it in the color choices. I know it, it is, and that was one of the 
I mean, I just get so nervous with these things. You know, so excited when I have the idea and then so excited to be able to work on them, you know, and that's, everything's going to be brilliant. This is going to be brilliant. And then, you know, they get, they're finished. And then there's a long time between them finishing. And then I'm suddenly thinking, what was I thinking? You know, did I get that right? How is it going to, you know, and so there's a long line of kind of, of nervousness. And one of the things is, um, uh, I love Mike's, Mike's humour and I loved mm. you know in Mr Higgins there's so many fantastic bits that I loved and so I was trying hard to keep that in the spirit of the books but I knew that this one was going to have to step back a bit with with some of the gags with some of the sort of the lightness because um, it is a darker story mm. and um, and I don't know whether maybe maybe with that in mind, I'd, I'd been working differently with the colour and bits and pieces like that. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like right, right now, I'm looking at a page where uh, the biter is involved. That's all I'll say. Uh, yep. And a, a character center panel has resigned themselves to an action, yeah. uh, allowing something to happen, and that just. The, the the expression on that character, how that character is centered on that page, the coloring of the sewer around that character. Like when I turned that page, that page hit me because you see the center panel first. Yeah. And you're just like, oh, yeah, okay. We're going here. Oh, I, I mean, this is... I mean, that's that's amazing. Obviously, it's so exciting because that's the that's the plan you know that's what it's it's a big moment and and there's lots of sort of things like that in here and and so you know my i think it sounds a bit like a previous answer but i think there's a lot of stuff that goes on and i'm not sitting there you know i don't sit down sort of right well this is what the color's going to do today sure sure and, and this isn't what this is going to go and so it's 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 these ideas going along together and i draw a lot I don't know what these. I know, I, in my mind, I know what scenes are going to look. Well, no, hang on, that's the point. I, I don't have an idea of what the panel's going to look like before I draw it. I don't draw it from my head down to the page. I've got the idea in my head and I work it out on the page. Okay. And so, so there's lots of drawing and redrawing and, and sort of over many layers. And so, a lot of this stuff sort of is seen, or not quite for the first time, but but as it goes down, and so trying to sort of get the mood right and, and, and the actions right and the pacing, you know, sort of I can adjust the different elements at a time. So I don't, mm. you know, I, the sewer sequence, that sort of thing, there was a colour change because of the environment they were in and, and there's certain themes, there's a big sort of deal with circles all the way through that mm. sewer thing, just to sort mm. of, it, it, so it sort of sits like a chapter. So, you know, and these things go on in other parts of the book as well. But um, yeah. But yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I think you know to try to tell certain parts of the story because it's not all sort of a a sort of a steady level all the way through. Um, And so you don't do layouts. Yeah, no, no, no. uh, I do, I do, I do very quite small layouts, and then I do um, for very rough layouts, and then um, then work from those. Mister Higgins was was something I hadn't tried before, which is I sort of worked extra big, but individually with the panels. So I was drawing layouts 
and then I was drawing um, what, what sort of we had the A sizes, so A three size, which is sort of original art U.S. comic board size, but that might just be for a sort of a large top panel. And so I was doing the drawings that size, and then sorting them out into how the page would be, then printing that out, and then drawing the pages that way. Okay, yeah, because it does feel like very uh, purposefully paced. Yeah, it's it's a combination. I mean, well, again, working with Mike's um, script was exciting because he was. I think it's a. It wasn't a, a method I'd worked with, but I think it's since then I've heard it's been used more often. But mm-hmm. you know, he he'd give a script of bullet points for each page as to what's happened and I was sort of able to sort of fiddle around with the, the panels and bits and pieces and decide how many and what's going on in that respect and so and then he would go back to uh, have another go with a dialogue whether it was to add bits or take bits out or to move bits around to fit the page and um, and that seemed like quite a good process in terms of sort of being able to have a look at how things are going and, and maybe make adjustments to it at that stage so Oh, all right, fascinating. So yeah, I, I love all this process stuff. Um, so, Falcon Spear is the third one of these. I want many more, but you seem satisfied that you're just happy to have done three. But I guess you would also like more. Yes, uh, I would like. I would love to do. As I say, um, they, they are. There's, you know, there's a lot of ideas to sort of bristling out of the books. And so, you know, that I've, I, I'd like to have a go at. So, yeah, it would be great to do more. Like for me, I think one of the the joys um, reading uh, your comics, and, and Falcon Spear in particular, is that it it is a comic where I really want to share panels with people. And I think there is also like a memeability to mm. several panels in Fa- Falcon Spear uh, that... I think would be uh, a delight to uh, uh, share with uh, followers on Twitter and things <laughs> like that. There is a, a boom uh, in Falcon Spear that I feel like I could fold into my normal vocabulary of emotional online experience. Oh, there's got to be a boom in a Mike Manola comic somewhere. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, I have a friend who obsesses over booms in comics, <laughs> movies, and what have you. And uh, I have not shared this boom with that friend yet. Uh, <laughs> but Darren, you've got a really great boom in your future if you're listening. <laughs> Uh, Warwick, this has been like such a delight to chat. I could talk to you forever and I would love for you to come back at a future date, uh, to discuss more comics with you. No, I'd be, it'd be a pleasure. Thanks very much. Now, Falcon Spear comes out on the 25th of January here, a hardcover. Like I said earlier, uh, it will fit right alongside the other two. Other great thing about it. It's not continuity heavy so like if you have not read mr higgins comes home or our encounters with evil you can still just pick this one up and run with it yeah yeah so so yeah doing the there's three different stories in the five chapters of encounters with evil and i i kind of wanted it so we could you know it didn't you didn't know where Mr. Higgins would have been, whether it was before or after, or perhaps even in between. Um, the only sort of chronology with these guys is that 
that opening sequence in Falcon Spear when you're when they're back in their sort of uh, younger years. Right, right. Uh, now, for our listeners, if they want to continue this conversation with you online, where can they find you? Mainly, lazily, mainly on uh, Instagram at Wocko, W-O-C-C-O. That's where, that's, you know, that's my lifeline. I've got a very sleepy website that hasn't been uh, tampered with for a long time. A very lazy and uh, gently moving Patreon at Patreon. Uh, uh, dot, well, for you know, Wacko is the is the name right. on, on the Patreon. But um, and yeah, Twitter at Warwick JC. But um, but Instagram is is the is the way to go. And we'll have links for all of those places in the show notes of this episode. Just look there and start clicking. Warwick, thank you again so much for chatting. Uh, have a wonderful evening or early morning where you are. Yep, yep, early morning now. I've revved up on Haribo sweets and uh, so I could stay up late enough and I've got to do something to quiet myself down again oh, well i'm i'm off to have coffee because i got to go watch a movie for another thing i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. so have a wonderful evening <laughs> cheers see lisa we do need to lay out some traps for warwick along with rob he needs to be part of our returning guests, our prisoners. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to dig the hole, and then you <laughs> gather the leaves. Uh, I loved that conversation, and the thing I keep thinking about is how when he was crafting Mr. Higgins Comes Home, just the act of illustrating these tiny pieces of furniture were igniting these bursts of creativity, and how these characters and stories were just bursting from his brain during that process. And it highlights how questions like mine of like, I know I didn't say it like this, but I basically said like, where do you get your ideas from? <laughs> how foolish those questions are because there is not one place where ideas spring. But I do think that there is one state of being where ideas happen and that is a state of open acceptingness, like a place of confidence going, like when he is focused and drawing, he is affirming to himself, I am an artist. Yeah. I am a person with ideas and those ideas bear fruit. And I think that sometimes starting a project is the hardest because you're editing as the ideas happen. Yeah. You know, like, well, that's not a good idea. Look, not of all, not all of my ideas are beautiful and equal. Yeah, and it sort of also speaks to why Mike Mignola's name is still on the cover of our encounters with evil and Falcon Spear, even though he is not technically writing any of this content. Uh, it's from his world, his brain, his characters, his original ideas, and everything Warwick comes up with is tied, is tethered to that atmosphere and those ideas. Tethered, but not like in a limiting way. Like no. now the kite is being held. Let's see how far this string can go. Yeah. 
and we're just the little kitties on the grassy knoll observing the magic in the sky, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great place to be. The Mignolaverse, this is our celebration of it. If you have not partaken in it, here is your entryway. Go buy these comics, The Sword of Hyperborea number one and Falcon Spear. Links in the show notes to both of these creators. Uh, we are so grateful that they joined and got to chat with us about one of our favorite worlds that we love to visit over and over and over again. And next week, we're going to talk to another creator about another world that we have a great fondness for. And man, this is this is going to be a treat, everyone. We're going to be chatting with Scotty Young. Yeah, we can't believe it either. Yeah, it's super cool. Uh, he's here to chat about I Hate Fairyland. He's got a new Substack release, and the title is quite a mouthful, but also equally delightful. The unbelievable, unfortunately, mostly unreadable and nearly unpublishable untold tales of I Hate Fairyland. And I think we'll probably talk about a few other comics that he's made. Stuff like The Me You Love in the Dark from Image Comics, one of our favorite titles from 2021. Yeah, all right. Let's get prepared. Let's take some time. Lisa, we've got some movies to watch. We gotta go attend Sundance tonight. Let's get out of here. Let's get out of here, but stay in here because it is yeah. a virtual festival. We are battening down the hatches. We we bought hatches. We bought hatches. They've been battened. We've got lots of microwavable food to eat. So where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and poster, send them to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Me? Yeah. I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? Yeah, just do it. We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. You are now in session with the Comic Book Couple Counseling Podcast. Lisa Connickson. <laughs> And Brad Gullickson. <laughs> no, you're not using that. I was being a goose.